0: If you're just getting here, there's still some chairs uh, in the back. If you want to spread out, uh, I don't have... If you have your Bible, honestly, you can spread out a lot more if that's what you feel comfortable with, um, because I don't have uh, any quotes on the screen at all for us uh, this Sunday. We'll jump in here in in a little bit, a minute here. But um, I want to say welcome to any of you who I have not met before. If you were invited by a friend or whatever, um, I'm glad you're here. My name is Sean. If I... uh, if I didn't already say that or meet you, um, I am the lead pastor here for what is Pella Communities. Pella Communities has a big vision to do things in lower-income areas, um, and there's a lot of things that we can go into that I'm not going to go into right now, um, but I will say this just up front. Um, if you've been coming through the core group gatherings, just remember um, that, you hear that? You hear that generator? You know what that generator is doing right now? It's, it's heating up tacos, y'all, okay? Um, so when we're done with our service here, if you do not already have plans for like an early lunch... Um, We can spread out. Uh, We'll eat for a little bit. And then what we're actually going to be doing is a members meeting, uh, a members class slash meeting, which I'll explain when we get to that time uh, eventually. So if you've already kind of been in that space and saying, hey, I'm I'm ready to jump in, that time will be for you. But anybody can stay and eat tacos as much as you want. Somebody in the the congregation has covered the bill. So it's eat all you want, right? All right. And Thaddeus was talking big game like he's going to eat a bunch. But uh, they're applauding for you, Thaddeus. You're going to eat a bunch. Good job. Okay. So, (laughs) So that's what we're gonna do. So uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open open up to 2 Corinthians, okay? Uh, I personally have been so excited, not just to go through 2 Corinthians, but for some reason I really like the idea of saying, I'm going to, give me grace in saying this, we're gonna like master something. Meaning, I love if we're looking at like the book of Exodus, or we're looking at the book of Genesis, or we're looking at the book of Job, whatever it is. I like the idea of setting aside time for myself and going, I want to know this book really, really, really well. I want to know the ins and outs of it. I want to know the structure of it. And so um, I'm excited because though the core group gatherings have been great, the best way we feel like to know the Bible and quote-unquote master the Bible or a book in the Bible is to just go through it. We're going to go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're choosing 2 Corinthians for uh, uh, multiple different reasons, okay? And so I'll, I'll get, get into uh, that in a second. But before I do and before I pray, I want to just say something real quick because a lot of you guys are not aware of this. So up to this point for the last five weeks, um, it hasn't just been myself or Brandon who's come up here or Brock uh, leading stuff. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but we're operating right now until we have elders as a steering committee. And I, I don't think I could say enough um, and we don't have to applaud or anything like that. But if you knew how much work guys like Johnny... Um, and the Headleys and the, and, um, uh, the Macklins and the Cosbys uh, and the South Halls, if you knew how much the, the Landefelds put into all of this and the Tobys put into all this, if you knew, and I keep going on and someone's gonna get upset that I don't mention it's like the Grammys, but you get the idea, right? Like there's been a ton of people who were here this morning at 5.45 a.m., right? And setting up and doing all this and have been doing that for a long time. And so I really am grateful. Even now, um, those of you who dropped off your kids, just check this out. There's, there's our people in there, which we get to start um, the gospel project as our curriculum. Our kids are going to go through the story of God every three years. They're in there right now. Those volunteers don't go to get, get to go to church today. Like that's a huge sacrifice that they're giving for our congregation. So I just, everybody who's been a part of kind of getting this thing off the ground, you guys know I'm grateful. As a church, we're really, really grateful. So as we start this, I felt like I just wanted to say, hey, listen, we get to go into a book now and start this season of a church in 2 Corinthians because of the hard work that God has given us the ability to do. And so let me pray, and then uh, we'll dive into 2 Corinthians. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to gather. I'm grateful for, honestly, just, yeah, being outside birds and uh, bugs and, and the, the uh, relatively, at least for Phoenicians, the cool air. Um, God, I'm grateful that we now get to dive into something to know. So many of us want to know more about your word. And so we get to set aside months to just sit in 2 Corinthians and understand the nuances of it. That's super cool. And we're excited to do that. Pray you'd be with us as we do that. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus name. Amen. So open up to 2 Corinthians Let's go at this the best that we can. Um, this is a book that is, uh, I found, we knew we were going to go through 2 Corinthians probably the first week that we started our core group gatherings for multiple reasons, which I'll explain. But this is how 2 Corinthians starts, and I'm going to give us a little bit of background. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We're doing it, you guys. We're starting a church and going through a book in the Bible. We're doing it right now. It's happening in real time, Okay. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop there because we've got to explain a lot of what's going on within the Corinth church and a lot of things that are being mentioned here. So um, if you're not aware, this is obviously 2 Corinthians, but you might not know this, there are four letters to the Corinthian church. We actually only have the evens, meaning we only have the second letter, and the fourth letter, so we call them First and Second Corinthians. But there was a letter before First Corinthians, which he mentions in First Corinthians, and then there was a letter before Second Corinthians. Okay, Paul has a long history with this church. If you don't know who Paul is, he's this missionary called by God, who is against the church, and now he's been planting these churches. And he plants one, and you can see this language here with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Achaia um, is a word in the same way we would use the valley. Okay. So Achaia sums up different parts of what are south-central Greece, okay? So it would be the same way we have Phoenix, we have Glendale, we have Peoria. That makes up the valley. He's calling this Achaia. So this letter is written to the specific church in Corinth, but saints who are outside of that as well. Now, there's something you gotta know about Corinth if we're gonna dive in. The best friend that we can have into a book is understanding the context, okay? So let me give you some context of what this city is like. I'm actually gonna show you a map uh, next week of of Corinth so you can kind of get an idea. There's four things I want you to be aware of um, as we dive into this book with Corinth, and we see a lot of this in 1 Corinthians, okay? If you've never read 1 Corinthians before, the word that I would use to sum up 1 Corinthians is stop, okay? It just feels like as you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to this church that he helped plant. He's pastoring them along. And it's like, you guys keep arguing about who discipled who. You're suing one another. You're taking communion wrong. You got sexual morality in here. The gifts aren't going well. Just over and over, It's just this gigantic rebuke. Somewhere in there, as he visits, he ends up spending seven years at one point and then three summers later on, as he, as he ends up spending time with him, somewhere in there he realized that I need to be a little softer with this group, okay? But understand what this Corinth world is like. There's four things I want you to be aware of. The first thing is the people in Corinth, which is about 250,000 people in Achaia, um, they're extremely prideful. And not maybe in a bad way, they're prideful of who they are. And give me grace in this, so I'll just say it, Brock's from Texas. But they're like a Texan. Like when a Texan enters the room Everybody knows that Texan entered a room. Like, yeah, we get it. You're from Texas, okay? Like, it's awful there. We know, okay? So, so they're, they're that. And everything they stamped as they sent it out was marked, hey, this is our deal. The second thing you got to know about this whole city is it is full of sexual morality. I mean, it's part of the DNA. There's this, um, the Arrow Corinth is a mountain that sits just above the city. It'd be very similar to like South Mountain. And on it sat a temple that housed a thousand um, uh, temple prostitutes, okay? And so what would happen is part of their worship is they would go in and they would sleep with these temple prostitutes. And it was so rampant that every temple prostitute, historically we have this data, every temple prostitute was required on the bottom of their sandal to have written in Greek, follow me. So that as they walked, they would leave in the imprint of the dirt, the words follow me, so that you would know when you see follow me, it leads you to sexual morality, it leads you to uh, uh, temple worship with these prostitutes. It was rampant, which is wild as you think of Jesus making the statement, follow me, it gives a whole new meaning to the idea. The third thing that you got to be aware of is there's a lot of Greek philosophy. This one, we don't have to spend a lot of time on. I mean, the idea that we know Aristotle, we know Socrates, we know Plato. I mean, a lot of that stuff has seeped into our own Western world, but that's clearly rampant all over everything that you would see. And so these things just to be aware of. But then the last thing that I want you to see is the fact that um, there's a lot of comfort within Corinth meaning it's this huge intersection for commerce. And so what you have is you've got people with a lot of money who are very, very comfortable. Okay, so I want you to listen to what I just described. Sexual morality, a lot of pride with where they are, a lot of worldly philosophy, and a lot of comfort. What does that sound like we are? America, 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 right? Now, here's what is fascinating, and this is the first reason we're choosing to go through 2 Corinthians. What's fascinating is Paul chooses to plant a church In that. He chooses to enter into that world and plant a church. Okay, so when you hear Paul saying, Paul and Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of God, God sends Paul into this area to start this church. And again, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first reason we're going through second Corinthians is to understand the dynamics of this. But there's a second reason. And it's the passage that we have today, which is verses three through 11. Okay. And, um, we knew, like I said, when that first core group gathering, we knew that we were going to go through second Corinthians. I put it in front of the steering committee. And I knew as we processed that there was a reason that I read the beginning of 2 Corinthians that I've been wanting to talk with believers about for a long, long time. Because here's what I think the beginning of 2 Corinthians does it tells us why God gave us 2020. And and I get it, on December 29th, December 30th, and December 31st, we're gonna see all the cliche posts of I'm done with this year, next year's a new year, we see it every single year, but everybody's putting that post this year, right? I mean, it started with losing Kobe and we knew it was going downhill from there, right? And so 2020, in, in all sincerity, has just been rough. I mean, it's not just COVID and the lives that it has affected uh, uh, um, with sickness, but even beyond that, we have mental illness. I mean, you guys get it, the economy, the racial unrest that is in our country, beyond even all that, I, I don't know. Some of you who are older probably can speak to this, but it just feels like politically we're more polarized than, polarized, polarized than ever before, It feels like you can't even look across the table anymore, much less have a conversation with somebody. 2020, and I'm not, I'm usually like, let's get it. 2020 has been terrible. It's been terrible. Now we have a lot to be thankful for because the reality is as bad as it has been for us, the third world country is tenfold, but it still hasn't been great. And that doesn't even include for some of you, the relational distrust, the distress that's been added to your job, the loss of job. The fact that our economy right now has high unemployment, but the housing market is booming is so bizarre. Like we're just living in this this unrest. And here's what's wild. Amidst all of that suffering, I think 2 Corinthians tells us why God does not give us um, preferential treatment as his children. He looks at his children and he says, in the same way that the world is going to suffer, you're going to suffer. The doctrine of preferential treatment is absolutely unbiblical. The fact that we think that it would not rain on the just, but it rains on the just and the unjust alike. And what 2 Corinthians does is it gives us a reason why. Because 2 Corinthians isn't afraid to embrace the fact that sometimes life is terrible for believers just the same. As a matter of fact, listen to this. You can look these up at another time, but we're gonna cover all these verses. In 2 Corinthians alone, listen to what Paul puts in front of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse eight, it says, we're hard pressed as believers on every side. In 16, it says that our outward man is perishing or wasting away. Some of the older folks, you know what I'm talking about, okay? In chapter six, listen to this. We need great endurance and troubles and hardships and distress and beatings. This is describing believers, okay? Like, I don't know what Bennion's doing with this or Olsteen's doing with this. In beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. In Second Corinthians 7, it says that we're harassed as believers on every side. As a matter of fact, in Second Corinthians 12, there's a moment where Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, the Jesus-wearing Paul the Apostle, asks God to remove a demon, this demonic force that is upon him, and God says no. 2 Corinthians is not afraid to talk about suffering. And so what we do is he starts the book with this idea And so as we kind of wrestle what we do and how we process all that, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear as we hear these words what it says for our text today. This is where it starts in verse three, that God has chosen to give us as believers uh, this suffering. And I wanna just say before we read this, it's not that God has just given us suffering like as in John 17, that in this world you'll have trouble, but he also calls believers a step further in James uh, 1.3 that we would rejoice in it. In Romans 5.5, he tells us to find hope in suffering. In and, and Romans 8, we're told that we're to see that suffering, experience that suffering, experience the loss of that relationship, the loss of that job, the, the fact that your mom or dad was dying and because of COVID you weren't to see them, and weren't able to see them in their last days. What am I supposed to do with things that take away my breath as I've sat in, in, a, in a room before with a miscarriage and you go, I don't know what to say and yet I'm told all these things work out for the good. Believers are supposed to have a completely different paradigm When it comes to suffering, and what's been tough is the American church has wrapped its luxuries around expectations that the third world has just come to expect. We're surprised when these things are removed. We're surprised when we suffer, and we shouldn't be. And this is what it says in response to this idea. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. Okay. Okay. So the first part is a very normal introduction. But before we go through these things, you've got to understand the second part because he does not refer to himself as the God of comfort very often. I don't think ever again Paul refers to God in this way. Now this word comfort is tricky because even myself has looked at many of you and said, listen, don't lean into your comfort. But comfort's a tricky word. It's the same word that we have for the Holy Spirit. The Greek word here is parakletos. It's this idea that is there's a density to it. So maybe think of the word comfort because it's gonna appear a lot. As a matter of fact, um, the word comfort appears here in four verses than all of the rest of the New Testament combined. It appears 10 times in four verses here. So we got to understand what this word means. So when you see the word comfort, there's two ways that we can think of comfort. We can think of comfort through pleasure, okay? Like you go home, you're going to sit down. There's like a comfort to your couch. You've got your spot, whatever it is. There's a pleasure to it. But then there's this other side of, of, of comfort. And, and, I, and it's what I think is being talked about here. It's this idea of peace, the analogy that I would give you is it's the difference between like you bust up your knee, tear some ligaments, right? It's the difference between going through physical therapy and taking a cortisone shot. Like if you've ever, you, those of you watch Brett Favre at the end of his career, dude was just all kinds of busted. They just kept filling with cortisone because he couldn't take time to just actually heal. What physical therapy does is it actually makes you stronger. Cortisone just makes you think that you're stronger, and it might work for a minute, but it's not a long-term solution. And so pleasure in this moment, that's a a fading, a fleeting thing in that way to think of comfort. That's not the word here. It has something to do with a deep, dense, strong peace. It's like a soft strength that God affords. And now Paul has declared, this is that God. He's the God of comfort, that deep, dense peace. And then he goes on to say this. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the Bible verse by verse here. Here's what I want you to know. I'm not a linear dude, okay? Meaning I'm usually not like, let me give you three points and give you a poem at the end. That's not how I operate. It's like, you know, how, say whatever and then give you a Spurgeon quote at the end, okay? But here's what I will say. I think what our text does is something pretty fascinating that requires us to look at seven points. And I'm not a point guy because um, here's what I know. Very often God gives you the what in scripture, what's happening, like, I, like you're gonna suffer. Sometimes he gives you the how, how you're gonna suffer, but barely ever. I mean, so, so rarely does he give you why. I mean, you look at the doctrine of predestination, you get to see the what, you get to kind of see the how, and you're going, okay, God, why would you do it that way? And you're left. You look at suffering in other ways, other passages, you go, well, why would you do it that way? But today, today in this text, the very rare times that we get a why, it's here. Today, Paul's gonna give us seven reasons we have 2020 as a believer, seven reasons. Look at the first one in verse four. It says this, here's the first reason, the God of all comfort, that's the who in verse four, the God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction. I have been waiting probably two months to make that statement. You wanna know why you suffer? Listen, listen, God sees you. You're reminded when you suffer, you are not suffering alone. Christians, let me remind you of Genesis 21 when Hagar is separated from Abraham and she's sitting there weeping by the tree as she leaves her son to die. And you know what verse 16 says? God saw her. God sees you. The first reason that I think Paul is putting in front of us, suffering reminds you that the God of comfort is the one who comforts you. You forget that. He's the one who comforts you. Not your self-help. Not your fantasy squad. No, no, no. God comforts you. That's the first reason. The second reason is also in verse four. It says this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted By God, I told you that word's gonna appear a lot. I want you to look at the beginning of that part there. I said, so who comforts us in all of our affliction, comma, that word so that there, that's called a purpose clause. Meaning when the text gives you a so that or therefore, specifically a so that, it's this has happened, so that. So the first part is what? That God, the God of comfort has comforted you. Here's the second reason as a child of God, God has comforted you. So that you can comfort others. This is what Christians do. This is how ministries are born. How many times have I seen a woman who's gone through domestic violence walk alongside another woman who's amidst domestic violence and comfort her in her affliction? This is what believe, we, this is exactly what James 1 3, Romans 5, Romans 8 is doing. It's calling believers to recognize the suffering and say, I want to see what God is doing in that suffering. And the first thing that God is doing is he's comforting you. The second thing that he's doing is he's taking the fact that you have been comforted to comfort others. I mean, go through the list of miscarriage, abortions, uh, rape. That's just for women. Uh, How many times I've watched just with men who've gone through um, long bouts of just being addicted to pornography, get set free from it. What do they do? They walk with other men through it. This is what believers do. And I want you to see this because look at the next part of that. It's not just done, also on this point. So that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction. Listen, with the comforts that we, okay, stop with the same comfort that we've been comforted, which means there are other types of comfort out there. So we walk along somewhere and we don't comfort them with the Enneagram. Breathe, I'm not saying the Enneagram's bad, okay? I'm an eight, so I can say whatever I want, okay? So, so, so what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here, though, is we're not looking to self-help to comfort them. How have you been comforted? You've been comforted by the God of comfort. How should you comfort? With the God of Comfort? That's what we're doing here in the second reason. The third reason is found in verse five. For as we share abundantly, for is referring back to everything we just talked about. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so, that's again, you can see it there, another purpose clause. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. This one's pretty fascinating. The third reason God has allowed, the God, God our Father, the God of comfort has allowed his children to suffer is so that you, can remember that you're in union with Christ. I don't think we talk about the union of Christ, the doctrine of the union of Christ enough as a church. The fact that you choosing to follow Jesus Christ, you now have become one with Christ, is a fascinating proposal. The fact that now you... Get to spend eternity with Him means something before that, In the same way Jesus Christ suffered and then was raised from the dead, you too get to relate to Jesus in that you suffer and one day will be raised from the dead. This is a fascinating idea. I mean, um, it's not just at a, a large level. You know, I'm coming through a season of feeling very misrepresented. I won't get into the details. Um, but, but I, I tell you in the last couple months, wanting to hearing something that was said about me and wanting to chase it down, right? No, that's not true. Or no, wait a minute. Wanting to send a text. And I realize one day I'm sitting in my backyard and I'm just sitting there feeling like so many things are being said that are just not true, not knowing how to process it all. And I swear, I, I feel in that moment, the spirit goes, that's how Jesus felt like this. In that moment, I can resonate with the fact that Mark 14 tells me that Jesus was lied about, that things were said about Jesus. And so I, I resonate, but it's, it's beyond all of that. Those of you who are at loss of relationship, friendship gone, think of Jesus, how he feels in the garden or the fact that Judas betrays him. Those of you who have lost loved ones, what do you think he feels in the moment as he looks at Mary and Martha with Lazarus gone? In this moment, we resonate. We are in union with Jesus Christ in our sufferings. That's why he allows you to suffer. This is good news. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is good news. The next reason that I want you to see is found in verse 6. It's the fourth reason that I think God allows his his, um, children to suffer. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul pivots here for a second. He begins to talk a lot about his own sufferings. Now, this is important. He's gonna talk a lot more next week. We'll unpack that. But in talking about his own sufferings, he does something that's pretty fascinating. Look at it again, okay? He says when he's afflicted, it's for them. He says that twice in verse six. And then look in verse seven. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know, now listen to this, that as you share... In our sufferings, here's the next reason I think God allows His children to suffer, because when we suffer, we're not just in union with Christ; we're reminded that we're in union with one another. One of my favorite verses is in Ephesians 1.18. This is bonkers, you guys. Check this out. In, in, in Ephesians one eighteen, it says that um, Paul's praying that the God that God would open the eyes of your understanding, the open the eyes of your hearts or uh, of understanding. And what's fascinating is he uses the word your as he writes to a church. And and it's in the singular or plural. It's in the plural. Meaning he says, I pray that all of you, all of you, okay? And then when he uses heart, he says it in the singular. So he says your, plural, heart, singular. What he's saying is there are many of you as a church, but there's one heart. We are united as as believers. Being in a church together, we pulse the same. This is why he can make declarations like 1 Corinthians 12, that we are many people, but as believers, we have one heart. And when we suffer, we look across and we go, I'm with you. We suffer together. We suffer together. You're not the only one dealing with anxiety. You're not the only one dealing with depression. You're not the only one who's lost someone this year. There are other believers who suffer alongside you. Let's keep going. So the first one is that we are reminded of the one who comforts us. The second one is we're reminded of the fact that we comfort others. The next one is that we're reminded of the fact that we are in union with Christ. The fourth one is that we're reminded that we are in union with one another when we suffer. The fifth one is found in verses eight and nine. I'm gonna put eight verses eight, nine, and then uh, 10 together to give us the fifth and sixth reason that I think God allows us to suffer. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to, and here's the purpose clause again, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see it? Look look at the text again. Look at at verse eight. It's fascinating. You are burdened beyond your own strength. See it there? And then look at verse nine. That is two. Why are you burdened beyond your own strength? Why are you suffering? Look at it. To make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Okay. Um, Ten months ago, we felt like as a nation, we had a lot of security. We had a lot of security in a lot of different things, not just as a country, not just as a state, not just even as a community, but even as individuals. And what suffering does is it sobers you up, homie. It sobers you up. It reminds you, you do not, everybody, everybody's got to lay their head down at night and you are like a vulnerable little baby. You do not get to control. If somebody does something in that moment, they could break in. You could wake up and do something, but you are helpless. And what suffering does is it reminds you, you have limits. You want her to live and she died. You did not want that relationship to break up, but it did. You wanted, you wanted, you needed, you needed. And there's a point where God says, no. And you were reminded, you have limits. And you wanna know why you're reminded that child of God is because you were never meant to rely on your own power. Suffering reminds you that you are to rely on him, which leads us to the the 10th verse and the the sixth point, because this is uh, so beautiful. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So it's not just that we're not to rely on our own strength, but we're reminded we've actually been hoping in something else. And that's the next one. That that as we suffer, we're reminded where our hope should be. Suddenly, out of nowhere, we see ourselves for where we've really been. We've been a bunch of stranded uh, sailors out in the middle of open waters, drinking salt water because we're thirsty. And we realize those things, we're meeting outside, pause. Okay. And spirit's back here. Okay, so, 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 so listen, you're reminded of this truth that you've been putting your hope in other things. Maybe that relationship was good for you to lose. Maybe that job was good for you not to have. You have no idea. There's a thousand different things going on, but here's what we do know. It's very possible as a believer, you've been putting your hope in that other thing. And so God in his love says no. God in his love says no. No. So as we go amidst this suffering, we now find our, ourselves being reminded where our hope really needs to be. Look at it again, you can see this. On him we have set our hope, he will deliver us again. God has given us 2020 to remind us where our hope is. It is not, and I don't know if you guys need to do this, uh, but you can go ahead and watch the second debate, but Tuesday was enough that my hope is not for November. My hope is in Jesus Christ, right? It was terrible, my, my hope is not in one party or the other. My hope is in Jesus Christ. Both those dudes are gonna let you down, man. They're gonna let you down. And, and, and even, let me, just, let me just say it for what it is, their policies are gonna let you down. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're beyond all that stuff. Our hope is not there. It's not there. But we have to be reminded where our hope really is. Now, the last thing I want you to see is in verse 11. The last thing is, is uh, to suffering in general but I find it fascinating and it's a, it's a pretty intriguing uh, theological idea that's found in verse 11. This is what it says. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on, your, on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. The, the seventh thing that I think re, the reason God gives us suffering is to remind us that we need to pray for one another. Now, here's what I mean. I want you to look at this. This is pretty bizarre at the beginning of, of 11. You also must help us by prayer. Okay, so I want you to picture someone suffering. We're, we're, we're looking at this person suffering. We come alongside them in their suffering. God, the God of comfort is the one who's going to comfort them. But in some bizarre way, and, and I've been asked this a lot as a pastor, how does prayer work in all of this? In some bizarre way, God uses your prayers to also help them. Like, I'm not making that up. Look at that, it's there. You also must help us by prayer. So I got a, a, a dude that I know from way back. His name is Bill, older guy. And he's the guy that when you have something going on in your life and he asks you how you're doing, you don't tell him. Because the reason is in that moment, he's the dude who prays for you right there. Okay? So you can't be at Subway talking to Bill and he's like, how you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm great, dude. I don't need prayer. I don't like, there's like a line. We're good, right? Okay. Now, that feels like a little old school religion, but man, let me like, I think we need some of that. I think we need a little bit of that in our DNA again. The fact that we actually pray for people and believe we're working alongside the Lord in that prayer is a fascinating thing. And when we suffer, we're reminded to pray. We're reminded to pray. So all that to say, let me recap where we are. And then I'm gonna read one thing to you and I promise we're done. God has allowed 2020 to take place. He has given believers 2020 for these reasons. So that when we suffer, we're reminded where our comfort comes from. When we suffer, we're reminded that we're to help others with that same comfort. When we suffer, we're reminded that we are in union with Christ who suffered. When we suffer, we're reminded that we are in union with other believers who also suffer. When we suffer, we're reminded that we don't rely on our own power, but in God's strength. When we suffer, we're reminded that our hope is not in this world, but in the God of comfort. And then lastly, when we suffer, we're reminded that we are to pray. Now to close, I want you to to look back at the text and I want you to look at verse 10. This is where we're gonna close. And here's why. Um, Whenever I prepare a sermon, I get through, I kind of start with the um, original languages. I go through commentaries. I kind of form everything, get on a table. And I come up with my sermon. And then what I do is I read Charles Spurgeon's sermon on that text, okay? To find out how terrible of a human I really am. So as I read Spurgeon's sermon, as I came to this, he had 14 sermons on these 11 verses. And I said, I'm not reading all 14 of those sermons. And so what I did is I picked a few, and I picked verse 10 as one of the sermons that he preached on. And he calls, the title of his sermon for verse 10 is called The Tenses, The Tenses. Now, the reason it's called The Tenses is I want you to look at verse 10 again. I want you to look and see this. It's in the past tense, It's in the present tense and it's also in the future tense. And it might be a little confusing for the ESV, so I'll explain that. The first one is, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, past tense, and he, and it says will deliver us, but it's in the present tense there. He does deliver us right now. And then on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us. Here's what's amazing amidst your prayers is you can know you're praying for something that is secure, As we'll find out next week, in him, everything is yes and amen. But more than that, this is what's fascinating. As a believer, the hope that you have is what Jesus did in the past, is working right now in the present. And though you do not understand this, one day, all suffering will be done away with. And what a day that will be. One day, 2020 will be no more. And I don't just mean because 2021 is coming. I mean the fact that every loss you have felt, every heartache you have experienced because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in verse nine, you have a hope in the future in verse 10. And that is good news. Let me finish you with the first sermon ever at Pella with my man Spurgeon. This is what he says. How does then this work? He delivers us and now we deliver ourselves? No, no, no. He delivers us and he still delivers us now. But what about the future? We must deliver ourselves then. No, no, no. He delivered us then, he delivers us now, and he still will deliver us in the future. The same person working in the beginning also works at the center and will also work at the close. It is all of God from first to last. There is no one else who delivers you or who had ever delivered you that we can ascribe glory to anyone else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. May that be our call for Pella. We find our abiding in the God of comfort. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit in your word. I mean, the fact is that um, there's so many things that we have that are inebriating us like this church, so many things around us, beckoning us to sexual morality, beckoning us to worldly wisdom, beckoning us to do things we know we shouldn't do, uh, having us ignore the things that we know we should be doing, God, over and over and over. The comforts, the pleasures of this world ultimately keep us from the big, ultimate comfort. And I pray, God, that we would see this clearly. And so right now I pray for every single person here every single one of your children that's going through a season of suffering. I pray that they would be reminded that you are the God of comfort and that you comfort them. And then I pray that those who are on the back end of that season of suffering, or even in the midst of, comf- uh, of receiving comfort, I pray that you would show them how they can comfort others. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We need you. Help us. In your name we pray. Amen.